welcome to the Stoke Connect podcast series. Our podcasts are designed to not only connect with our staff, but to also motivate, inspire and educate on trending topics in our industry, plus so much more. You'll discover about your fellow colleagues, we'll explore some industry-relevant topics, and share useful tips on well-being, health and safety, as well as career and personal development. To hear our latest episode, go to stowaustralia.com.au or head to our Facebook page to hear the latest podcast. We hope that you enjoy the next episode of the Stoke Connect podcast series. Well, hello and welcome. My name's Craig Pendleton, and it's my pleasure to be hosting today's podcast. Today, I'm joined by two special guests who are both former general managers within our business, Bob Dixon and Peter Fitzpatrick. Bob was our client services general manager for many years, and Peter was our Sydney construction general manager. At the risk of making them feel old, these two gentlemen have a combined 95 years of service with the company between them. I thought today we'd take a retrospective look at Stowe with these two guys who have played such important roles during the expansion of Stowe into what we are today. So welcome gentlemen and we might first start with you Bob. Bob do you remember your first day at Stowe? I know it was a long time ago but can you remember it? Well um, I can't remember what I did yesterday (laughs) but um, no it it is something that stands out in my mind I think that uh, I remember here I was a 15-year-old guy from out west, a Westie, and uh, I'd got a job in the big smoke. And, uh, yeah, the thing that I used to do transport-wise was just have a push bike and go around. But I got this job in town and uh, first day I had to get up early and get a a, a bus down to the train station then a train into uh, Town Hall uh, Station, Sydney Town Hall, and then I had to walk down to Druitt Place and uh, there I was introduced to the workshop foreman, actually, uh, Ken Barber. Uh, because I was an apprentice electrical fitter mechanic, I started in the workshop. And uh, in the workshop, uh, I guess the first day I remember that um, it seemed as though they didn't have much for me to do, even though they had a lot to do, but they just wanted to get rid of me. So they... Uh, the, the foreman got me over to uh, put it, uh, there was holes or divots in the, in the floor and he said, here, there's some 16-gauge uh, gal metal here, cut it up and put it over these, um, these holes. So that's what I did. I, you know, he just showed me what to do and I cut it uh, to the size, drilled the holes in it, uh, secured it under the, under the ground and then... Uh, it was mainly because they had nut oil trucks, which were um, oh, pallet palletizers or hand palletizers, and uh, they were getting stuck. So that was that went on for the full day, actually. But uh, I guess after that, you know, uh, I was given because I was a first year apprentice, I was given uh, the crap jobs, I suppose, like everyone does, and. Uh, you know, normal cleaning motors and cleaning stators, cleaning bearings and uh, just general things like that. But as I said, it, it, it got better as I went along. Um, you know, it, I got to rewind motors and uh, overhaul and repair ACDC motors of all types, uh, repair welders, do welding, metal fabrication, um, there was a whole lot of things that I learnt. Uh, yeah, it was um, a very good learning curve, I, I've got to say, and it helped me that much through 
the industry as I was going through and I was in the workshop for the whole apprenticeship, which was five years, and uh, then I left to go into mobile servicemen. So, yeah, I uh, again, I, I do remember that. That still sticks in my mind that I had to put covers on the floors at Stowe, at Old Stowe, at uh, Drewer Place, and they were... They only had an office in a workshop at that stage there. So, yeah, that's that's it. So that was your introduction to being an electrician? Sure was, yeah, mechanical stuff. But I was a fitter, but, yep. you know. And Pete, what was your first day like? Well, I, I joined as a electrical mechanic, which predominantly was going to be out in the field installing lights, power points, machines, equipment. So when I first turned up, my first day was uh, more fill-in because they didn't have anything out on sites to send me to, so I, th- I swept the floor, <laughs> emptied the garbage bins and potted around. But um, probably I had a better recollection of my interview. I turned up and there was a gentleman by the name of Brian Roberts, or Doc Roberts. Um, I went up to his office, which was upstairs, and I sat in the chair and he was interviewing another candidate before me. And at the end of it, I seen him shake his head no, and I seen the guy's head to go down. I thought, oh, or he's been to other interviews of other places, and I thought, oh, this will be interesting. So, wandered in, he introduced himself, and he said, uh, looked at me, school reports, and then said, uh, see that cardboard box up on top of that shelf? I said, yeah. He said, can you read what's on the end of it? So, read the label off to him. He said, oh, good. Then he got three wires out of his thing. He said, tell me the green one, tell me the red one. So, I did that. Still looking because I've been through exams and tests at all the other interviews. And then he said, um, when can you start? It was such a laid-back exercise and uh, it was surprising. But I think that set the tone for the company that you, you fit it in and become part of the, the team and the, the setup. And it was uh, quite good. It was a welcoming start. And I'd be interested to know, what was the culture and work ethic like when you're an apprentice and an early tradesman? Like, what can you tell us about that? Stowood in those days was still very small. We had a transformer section, service section, and the construction section. Um, but we weren't doing big work. We are doing a lot of general little stuff. So the construction team was quite small. Probably, I think Stowall up was only about 70 people. I think there's about 30 in construction. So you soon got to know everyone uh, because you just worked in the groups, little teams all the time. And so the culture was quite good. It was very friendly because everyone, you just knew everyone. And uh, socially there was always little functions on. Uh, and I think the work work ethic was extremely good because um, you, you knew them. You socialised with them and it just happened. It just sort of worked along. And so when you turned up to another site, you knew the guys you turned up with, you knew their worth, they knew your worth. Obviously, when you're an apprentice, you have no worth until you get skilled up a bit as a first year, your first six months, it's still look, watch, listen and learn. And then as you progress through there, but all the time, there's help and adjustments and bringing it along the right way. And then later on, with the new apprentices that come on, you pass that on to them. And I, I think all in all, the culture become very strong and very good and the company was growing at that stage, slowly but surely, because I think of that 
work ethic and the quality of work that the people were producing. Mm. And was that your experience too, Bob? Yeah, I'll say ditto to that. Uh, I, I suppose uh, where I was, um, the culture was very um, class structured, I suppose, from the first year apprentice up to the manager. Um, it was a bit daunting. I mean, uh, the managers, the owners, uh, I was a little bit scared of them when I first started. Um, that was the only thing that uh, sort of um, culture-wise, I suppose, but uh, the ethics were very, very good. Um, everyone was honest and, uh, you know, everyone strived to do the, the right job, uh, the right thing. Um, in fact, in the rewind shop, uh, after I was uh, rewinding motors, uh, part of it was, you know, they had a timeline on certain things that you did winding and assembling motors and everyone would get in there and try and beat everyone's uh, time that was there. So, yeah, uh, ethic-wise, uh, I thought, and culture-wise, it, it was good. But yeah. as I said, that was uh, the normal, I think, back in those days anyway. And it was a different era back then. People were different. Society was different. If you sort of cast your mind back, was there stuff that used to go on in the workplace that you just wouldn't see in workplaces today? Well, I, I guess um, there's a few things, but something that stood out in my mind was uh, when I was an apprentice, uh, I was sent out uh, to do service work um, when they were in, in trouble a little bit. Um, this is I, solo, by yourself? Yeah, by myself. Uh, as an apprentice, I'd have to go around and uh, try and get a, a vehicle from someone um, Sometimes I'd use the truck, the old Amy truck that they had. Sometimes I was able to get it from my boss, uh, Roger, Roger, and uh, I'd, uh, they'd be sending me out mainly to jobs they think that I would have been able to do. And that was mainly motors and uh, um, starters and things like that. <coughs> Excuse me. And, um, yeah, but, you know, part of it, while you're out, sometimes you're supposed to work on motors and uh, controllers and things like that. Basically, they were relay logic, so it wasn't too bad. But some of the things that you had to fix, you'd never worked on before. So I, I did have to get help every now and then, ring up and, uh, and you know, that either help me or come out and help me. But uh, the worst part about it, I suppose, is when you borrow the vehicle, you, you know, sometimes I'd finish out west right out west and it was in the afternoon and what happens you had to go all the way back into town and drop the car off and then I had to go by train back home you know which was a a bit of a a downer I suppose but you know that was that was just what you did back in those days you know so uh, yeah being an apprentice and going out doing some of those jobs by yourself um, was a good learning curve actually but I don't think many people would be doing that no, these days. definitely not. And Pete, any stories you can add to that? Yeah, look, back in the early days, back then, everything was more a manual labour situation. Electric drills were only just probably making an appearance. I think the company owned two, so you use an egg beater um, or a brace and bit. And uh, hammer drills didn't exist. So to make holes, you use a hammer and chisel to make a a hole in something, then you'd have a lump of wood that you cut a piece of wood off and shove in there. Um, so it's just everything you did was manually. So all jobs took a lot longer than today, the way it's done. Um, but again, that 
major eye and look at things. And I suppose the biggest other bit is safety. It's been a massive change. When, when we first started off, you had bare earth wires. You worked live. You're always putting uh, breakers on the switchboards and uh, working in switchboards. So here you are pulling in your active neutral and a bare earth into a into a live switchboard, which aren't like the modern boards now, which are compact with the circuit breakers. They had, newly had lots of bare bar sitting back, even the little fuse boards. It just there's bare bits everywhere in them. So I think that's been a massive change for the better for the people. Uh, that you had to be aware all the time if you were in that switchboard for what's going on. And, uh, yeah, so a lot, a lot of changes from a really manual-based to potentially a lot more dangerous situation. Yeah. Scaffolds didn't exist, lots of things. It was, yeah. Yeah. And if you look back on your career, Pete, was there like one project or one client that you're really proud of that you thought, yep, that was as good as it gets? Uh, I don't think there was any one. There's a few jobs. The um, 77 King Street, I was on that as an apprentice. Um, that was built. Cedric Smithson was the general foreman on the job, so I was there for probably two years of my apprenticeship in the middle stages. Later on as a tradesman, I come back and did some bits and pieces. Again, the third time I come back as a, uh, uh, a foreman, and we totally, that's when computer centres first come in and Westpac put their computer centre in that building. Uh, so we had to redo the whole place again, additional main switchboards, and I was in charge of that. And then another time I come back as the project manager with uh, uh, Rob Steele on the site where they totally gutted the building that I spent my early days building and revamped it up to the Apple building of today. Um, so that one I've seen quite a few, but... The, the beauty is, though, we seem to, because, again, I'll go back to the work ethic and I think the quality of work, they seem to get a lot of interesting jobs as far as uh, we did the aquatic centre. We did the first uh, two big little computer centre and the one out at Bondi. Um, we're doing jobs that other people seem to shy away with. They did the office blocks and they did that. But if something awkward or difficult come up, client or customers had come to stow because they knew we could do the job. And I think along with that, you know, the aquatic centre was a great job to be on. Yeah, I did wheat silos out in the bush. Um, again, interesting, totally different style of work. And so, yeah, there's lots of good memories and good jobs. You know, throughout I, the crew. And I don't think a lot's changed. I think customers will still come to stove for the difficult jobs. We might be occasionally too dear for them for the run-of-the-mill job, but if it's a bit of risk and a bit, bit of difficulty, we still see them to this day knocking on our door. I agree. Coming to us. And any standout projects or customers for you, Bob? Well, I, I guess the thing is with me being a, uh, in the service department, uh, you're mainly by yourself, um, not on big jobs like uh, Peter and what have you, but uh, there's a fair few jobs, I suppose, that stand out, but one that uh, did stand out was uh, I was called in one day from CIG uh, operators um, and they made a, uh, a 3,200 horsepower 11 kV, kV motor had uh, stopped and uh, they said, can you come out and have a look at it? So uh, I got in the car and went out and um, uh, by the time I got out there, there was a CIG uh, chemical engineer there at the time 
and um, uh, we looked at the job and um, what I did is uh, ended up uh, megaring the, the stator and found out it was down to earth. Um, so we got the CIG um, fitters actually. They came in and uh, we jacked the stator away from the rotor and uh, by that time I could actually see what what the problem was. You could see where it had actually blown but luckily it hadn't blown too bad because the protection on this high voltage motor was uh, very good. So um, I ended up ringing uh, the head winder that we had at Stowe at that stage because I was in the service section and um, a few other people as well. They came in and we got varnish and uh, insulation and what have you and then uh, what we did together, we uh, repaired it as best we could because the engineer said, look, this is the only uh, oxygen compressor we've got and it goes 24-7. You need to get it fixed, you know, straight away. So anyway, we... um, Repaired it uh, as best we could, um, cleaned it up. Uh, I then got the high-voltage circuit breaker and pushed it back in and energised it, ready to go. Um, and then the uh, engineer started the, uh, the motor up after we jacked it back naturally and got it all in position and lined up. Um, and luckily <laughs> it went and... Uh, we were there probably 48 hours uh, in all. Uh, well, I was anyway. The, the engineer didn't want me to leave site at the time, so I was uh, had a few sleeps while I was on site in the car and uh, uh, the winder – well, there was a couple of winders there at the time. And, um, yeah, it was good that we got, got it going. Um, after we got it going, CIG actually – ordered in new coils for the stator and they had to come from Germany and um, the only only problem with that is that we couldn't do the rewind in the timeline and Westinghouse actually ended up uh, winding the motor. But, you know, it's something that really sticks out in my mind that, you know, here it is, 3,200 horsepower 11 kV motor that we got going uh, as best we could and, and luckily it lasted, oh, it was probably three months uh, till they started to rewind it, uh, rewind the stator. So, yeah, that, that does stick out. More yeah, more. so 48-hour stint, eh? Yeah, well, to be honest, you can ask Peter about this. I mean, it wasn't unusual for us, no. uh, especially we I'd, – I'd call in Pete when there was some big cable problems, uh, you know, when we couldn't, being the, estimate, uh, being the uh, service people, um, really, you know, couldn't – handle some of that stuff because it was really big, big work. Mm. Him and his uh, trusted uh, friend, Retz, uh, they'd, they'd come in and they'd repair it for us. And these guys would be on on, on site. What, what do you think, Pete? Is yeah, and lots of hours, lots of nothing to put in, yeah, weekends or nights yeah. continuously. Yeah. One stage we'd replace some boards on a job, I think, for three months. We worked seven days a week, 12-hour days. Yeah. And I guess that's what you did back in those days. I mean, um, yeah, you talk about safety and what have you now. I, I assume you probably wouldn't be able to, you know, do those sort of things now. But that was just what you did to get the client going. And uh, because you had the expertise, uh, you were there. Hmm. So, yeah, that stands out. 
And what about sort of change or innovation that you saw? Was there anything, Bob, for example, that you thought, wow, that's that's a real game changer as far as innovation or change? Well, I could probably talk about this for hours and hours. but yeah, good uh, talk. <laughs> <laughs> back in those days, oh, it was in 1982, actually, we uh, – we wanted a little bit of a, an edge on contractors back in those days and innovation-wise we uh, – uh, it was um, probably David Madsen more than anything else. We, he wanted something and we ended up uh, buying a thermal imager. Now this thermal imager, we uh, – I mean to our knowledge there was only one in Australia at that stage and um, we ended up buying it from Hughes Aircraft Company and they – I actually used the imager as a uh, to check out the heat on spacecraft back over in the USA, and that's where we bought it from. And uh, uh, it came out. They they uh, trained us from America, uh, thermal I- imager people, and gave us manuals and what have you. And uh, um, back in those days, uh, anyone that knows thermal imaging or infrared scanners, I call it now. Um, you know, it was the size of an old movie camera, uh, mobile one that you had. You put it on your shoulder, and underneath it was a um, a cooling uh, or argon argon cylinder, and it cooled the um, infrared scanner. And um, yeah, so it was something that uh, I think it was very innovative back in those days. And um, and in fact, the the first job. That we did. I, I, uh, Roger, my boss, uh, heard about that uh, Westpac were having troubles with their main switchboard uh, in the CBD uh, with heat. So uh, we got together and said, ah, oh, well, David did anyway and says, you know, PR-wise, I think it'll be good. We'll do this for nothing. You know, we'll go down and do our first bit of training. So we went down there and uh, went into their main switchboard room. All of the covers were off which wasn't a very good safety issue then. You could see all of the bus bars open and what have you and they had uh, fans there cooling down the uh, the switchboard, you know. So anyway, I, I got it set up and uh, uh, Roger and me were the ones that were there and I scanned the, uh, the incomers and I, I couldn't believe the first uh, image I seen it was just like a radiator was in there. The cleat bolts, which are bolts that hold the insulation and the bus bars that were there, uh, the cleat bolts were red hot. They were you could see the, the thread in the in the bolts, and I couldn't believe it was so hot. So straight away we knew that was the temperature. And as the cleat bolts went further down the the bus bar, uh, they got cooler, but they were still very very hot. You know, so we said to uh, Westpac who at that stage, they looked after that building themselves, their own own sparkies, you know. We said, look, you need new um, cleat bolts. Uh, they had the wrong materials that they used for it and uh, we recommended high-grade stainless steel and we measured it up uh, very uh, carefully <laughs> while it was on and uh, we told them how many bolts and what size and what have you and their guys were there and we went away and what happened uh, after about, I think it was about a month, it took them to have a shutdown and also they got the bolts and uh, we weren't there at the time. They replaced them 
their own electricians. I guess they didn't want us to do it because they'd have to pay us. So uh, they did that and uh, they rang us up. It was done on the weekend, rang us up on the Monday and they could not believe the, the amount of heat that had been, um, well, dissipated, I suppose. Um, so we, we went back uh, through that week and scanned it and we couldn't believe the, the heat had just completely, well, not completely gone, but uh, nearly, nearly, nearly went. And uh, I guess that was the first time that we, uh, you know, that we'd actually seen something and used the infrared or the thermal imager. And um, that started us, started us um, to what we do now, I guess. Uh, there's thermal images everywhere, infrared scanners everywhere. Um, and I think that helped Stowe to get into customers that we didn't normally get into. Uh, you know, you, you'd, you'd have customers, but some that you'd say, well, we can do this infrared scanning for you. We'd come in and do it for them and said, by the way, we can do this, do that. And it really was an innovation that I think was, I personally think it was the best that Stowe have had, but... Uh, you know, that's me, I'm biased. <laughs> so I broke down a few doors. Yeah, without a doubt, it, it was good. And as I said, I trained up um, a lot of infrared guys who went to the other divisions as we got bigger and it just uh, went from there. So, yeah. And Pete, did you see any major innovations that stand out? I think it's along the same with what Bob was saying. Then with David, he was always uh, very open to innovation and new stuff and if you could take something along to him and show that it was going to improve our service or our uh, outputs or whatever he was didn't mind spending the dollar so I think there's to me there's two sorts of things that we were one of the first guys of CAD one of the first companies that employed engineers um, a lot of that stuff which has assisted us to get work uh, do work correctly and better um, and I think going back to the general guys on the workface, I think one of the biggest bits and pieces uh, was the battery drill when it first come in. Because that and what do you say, the hammer drills and the battery drill, it really did the shift from so much manual labour disappeared with the ease of a battery drill to the point that nearly everyone these days has a battery drill and doing the work and there's the screws and attachments made for it. Uh, and even, what do you say, you virtually don't see an extension lead now where once, you know, sites had none because no one had any electrical equipment. Yeah. But later on, the sites had stands everywhere and leads running everywhere, um, which had a lot of sites with dodgy ones and bits and pieces to the point now that's eradicated that. So changes there. It's always through the industry. It's always improving and getting better. And I think Stowe has always been at the forefront for a lot of that on the workface and in the office for innovation and skills upgrades and training. So, no, it's good. No, good point, Pete. So, look, you both ran large departments, which is not always easy when you're managing people and you throw that human element into the mix. Um, I might just ask you first, Pete, what did you find helped you manage your staff and keep running things smoothly? I think and probably along the same as myself here, we both come up through the ranks, from a, an, an apprentice through different 
loads and bits so our experience gained which later on when you start running and controlling people you're there uh, you're not asking them to do a job that you hadn't done so you didn't have um any kickback that you know you heard some guy that's just come in from university or somewhere else along that same line and, and again as as the company is growing we're getting bigger crews so you were dealing with more people and I think just the grounding has come through from a leading hand to a foreman to a supervisor because on some of the sites you end up the full setup, your mum, your dad, your, the shoulder to cry on, at the same time you're managing and organising the people. And the guys come to realise that you're there to help them, uh, to get it done, to get it sorted out, but you're also there yeah, you know, everyone has a little problem. Sometimes they've got to talk out, and I think that all helps that comradeship or friendliness and respect, which is what people have got to have. If you're the guy in charge, you've got to have some respect for you that you know what you're talking about. You can do what you're talking about. Um, yeah, I won't say I was the greatest person at everything in the world in, in the game, but there was. Uh, I also and then knew people that were good at that item and I can at least talk a bit about it and I'd get them to do it. And they were happy to be given that trust to go ahead and do things. So it's a two-way situation and, yeah, it's all good. And what's your thoughts on the matter, Bob? Well, mine's a little bit different. I, I had a bloody big whip. <laughs> <laughs> no, not really. Um, I, I guess back in those days, you know, it was common sense. Uh, you know, if you're honest and uh, sort of – brought the people in, had communication. Um, I, I guess the thing is is that I, I, I like the idea of having uh, a meeting, not just because you have a meeting. Uh, you have a meeting where people can openly say what they want to say and not be afraid of saying it. So, you know, um, when I first started it was, it was very hard to manage the, my section, I suppose, um, David Madsen helped me when I first started and then it got a little bit easier uh, as we went on. Uh, there was more people in the, in the section, uh, they got more experienced. Um, I ended up with what, I don't know, it was about six managers I suppose and, uh, and as long as you got, you know, honest people there with you and you'd know that, yeah. Craig, because you were one of the people, one of the better people there. And, uh, and I must admit that um, it's not rocket science. It, it's, it's common sense. I think you need to, you know, sometimes you hear, oh, this person's done that, whatever. And then you'd go and listen to someone, his boss or his supervisor or, or him himself, and you'd find out it'd be completely different than what you're hearing. So, yeah. you know, I, I think common sense is, uh, is one of the things that... I think people need, and uh, getting back to what I said before, you don't need a whip. You, you, you just need the common sense to be able to sit down and talk to people and work it out, and um, and use the right people um, to sort of correspond to and uh, and what have you. So yeah, that's that's the way I see it. Oh, by the way, uh, in all the times we were together, Peter and I, I don't think we ever had a fight, did we? No, that I remember. I. I we might have had a few discussions about yeah, certain discussions, things. But, but, yeah. And I, I'd probably say that with most of the early early guys, the early managers, um, 
I can only ever remember one that I ever had, but, uh, um, you know, that'll stay <laughs> stay wherever. But, yeah. um, but as far as I'm concerned, yeah, that, that's that's why it was back in those days. And, and as I said, it gets better as you go along with experienced people, people that know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So, Pete, I checked with payroll and apparently you were with us for 48 years and seven months. Yep. So in all that time... Can you think back on any of the light-hearted or funny moments that stick out? There's a lots. And lots we've only things. got a certain period of time yeah. here. So. Uh, there's lots and lots. Um, I think when you're a lot on the tools and even later on I've had a lot of good, good days and nights with people and their functions. And um, Look, I, I remember uh, a couple of little funny ones, but it's the safety side that comes in these days. <laughs> I remember I was out at uh, a Myers store when emergency lighting first come in and I was crawling through the ceiling, uh, running in the cables, and there's a group of other guys up 10-foot stepladders installing the lights. And I finished this run, and I come back through, and there's a few holes in the ceiling that, you know, roofers were patching. And anyway, I come through, and I've seen this pair of pliers go up and a hand and go back down and go up. And I thought, oh, that's one of the guys putting up a light. So I got up above the, the hole a bit and then shot my hand through the hole and grabbed him and said, gotcha. And I actually got him because he fell off the ladder in fright. <laughs> I'm hanging my arm right through the ceiling, hit, hanging on to him so he didn't fall 10 foot until someone raced over and stood up the ladder. Then I couldn't get out of the roof for about the next three hours because he's waiting at the manhole to <laughs> To get square. Yeah. Yeah. So there's lots of just little bits along yeah. that same way where you, what do you say, you worked hard and you played hard. And it was always a yeah, bit of fun. Missed misbehaviour going on. And, Bob, you were with us 46 years, four months. Oh, I thought it was longer, but anyway. <laughs> it felt longer. <laughs> I think it was five months, but anyway. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, funny things, I suppose. The one, one of the things that stick out was um, back in those days you went to each division. There were three divisions, the transformer, the construction and, and service. And uh, first day I went to... Um, the construction, and I had to go out to Mortlake. And um, I went out there and uh, doing some work and it got close to lunchtime and I was told um, um, what I, well, a person there called Willow came up and gave me a um, uh, a bit of conduit, metal conduit, and he says, uh, here, I want you to drill a hole on the end of this and then cut the other end and sharpen it for me. And I said... Okay, so I did that and took it back to him and then he got some uh, building wire and we threaded the building wire through the end of the, the drill ends and then uh, we went down to the um, to shore where the water was and he said, here, get in there and try and catch some fish for me. And I thought, wow, this is something different. This is different training. But, uh, yeah, that was one of the funny things, I suppose, uh, uh, I was told that Will had—he'd actually caught some fish uh, doing it this way before, and 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 there was you know little things that happen like that all the time. So I'd now like to ask Pete, what do you think is the most important attribute a person needs to succeed in our industry? I think you just got to take the, the trade to heart, be right involved in it, and learn. Do as many courses or information sessions as possible to round yourself up 
because it's a, an ever-evolving game, the electrical game. The amount of different facets in there now that you can, what do you say, become tried into uh, or you can bypass. But do as many courses, learn as much as you can, and you need to know because to get on the site, all of these things from lighting control to big cables to switchboards to thermoscanning, all of this is just part of the trade now. The more that you know is the better and further that you'll go. And, Bob, what's an attribute that jumps out at you? Well, you said in the electrical trade, but I, I just say, you know, in anything that you do, uh, a lot of it's just, which I said before, common sense. Uh, I, I Sometimes I think in this world that, you know, people haven't got common sense, which uh, especially with some of the things you hear these days, you know. But uh, trying to be honest with, with people and uh, what Peter said, uh, training yourself up uh, in experience. But I don't care what you do. Uh, time is an element. And if you've got time, you've got the experience, y- you can go and do training sessions which help. But at the end of the day, you need to have that experience to be able to, um, you know, give it over. Um, I suppose uh, at the end of my uh, management life, um, I found it easier, much easier to be able to confront um, problems. And, and we had some problems that uh, were there that had to be confronted. But um, it didn't help to walk away from, I, I think confront them and resolve them and, as I said, in a common sense way. Um, yeah, I think you used to have a saying when I was working with you, don't be an emu was your Yeah, your well, saying. I, I guess that's the thing, you know. I, I did see that a bit um, early days. Um, people would just, you know, put their head in the sand and hope that it would fix itself. But I was trying to be proactive when – Again, when I got more experienced, um, to get there and just find out what the issue was. As I said, sometimes you think it's an issue at work and then when you get into it, it's not. It's an issue at home. And I think I was on the right side of people that they could explain that to me and it didn't go any further than just me and the person, yeah. which uh, I think is the way to go. And guys, is there anything that you learned along the way that you wish you had have known when you were starting out? Maybe, Pete, is there lessons that you um, learned that you were too hard on yourself or something like that? I think along what Bob was saying then, it's experience. Every time you do a job and you complete it, it's in your mind and you file it away because somewhere along the track a similar circumstance will crop up and then you can dwell on that experience that you've had from before not dwell, draw from, yeah. uh, to rectify it. And that was the same as you moved up in the management. We started doing bigger and bigger jobs. There was mistakes that you made on a job at the start, but the next big job you went to, you didn't make that mistake. It was experience learnt by going forward. And as Bob said, and I think the other most important thing, if and when you're moving forward through the setup, is your word. You've got to keep your word. You know, if you're say to someone, you've got to do this and I'll give you that for fixing this up or agree with a, someone that's going to supply your life fittings and then someone comes in and offers you another deal that's better. Bad luck. If you already said verbally to someone, that's your order because 
you break your word, it'll go through this industry that you're not to be trusted. Mm. And once you that starts, that leaks back to the blokes then that are working for you, he's not to be trusted. It's live by your word. Uh, it, we all make mistakes. The best thing there is to try and learn from those mistakes you go on. You might, might even make the same mistake again later on, but it may not have as big an impact as the first time. You just So, yeah, learning from mistakes and your word. And Bob? Yeah, I concur with that, Every everything you said. Um, I mean, in hindsight, you could go back and you could change things, but I think the learning curve that you had, the experience you got um, – yeah, I, I, as Peter said, you put it away in your mind and when something something comes up, uh, hopefully you can use it to the betterment. Um, I know that I had to get in some managers or supervisors or even workers sometimes and find out why they did something wrong. And to be honest, sometimes you'd be there, you'd listen to what they say and you'd say, bloody hell, I, I would have done that. You know, so why do you go you know, hammer and tongs at someone that you would would have done it yourself. So learning experience is the most important. And, and as I said, yeah, and that is time. Um, you can't learn everything off straight away. Um, you've got to get the experience of what you do. Sometimes you get into a situation that you've never been there before and all you can do is get the people around that um, know that situation and you had to resolve it. So you do it to the betterment of, of you know, the people that are there and, and telling you things and uh, and what you think is the way to go. I think that's one of the good things with Stowe. There's a big brains trust in Stowe that if there's a problem crops up and you're not aware how to fix it or go about it, there is people that are prepared to help and you know, sit down. Uh, we've got from engineers through to guys in the tools. Um, not all answers come from the, the brightest people in the room. Sometimes it comes from a bloke and the tools of why can't we just do this across here? And you think that was so obvious you overlooked it. Um, again, with the company, for the size and the skill base that it now has, I don't think there's anything that can't be sorted out or rectified from within the group. Yeah. And, that's and, and I've very got to important. say that, um, you know, one of the greatest mentors to me was David Madsen. Um, I'm not saying this because... I don't work for him anymore, <laughs> but at the end of the day, he, well, I, I said a couple of times to him, I think he's too good. He used to go out of his way to, to help. Um, but, you know, you, you need someone that you're able to go to. As Peter said, uh, there's a lot of people there that uh, when we were there that you could go to and you'd get, you know, uh, just guides on what to do. You, you'd make the decision, but the guy yeah. was there and... Um, as I said, that's that's the way we uh, started out, and I guess that's how we uh, or Stowe become what they are now—they're bigger and better. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to hear guys what retirement looks like for you, and if you've got any tips for those within Stowe who might be not too far away from that stage. So maybe Pete, if you want to jump in first and just bring uh, us up to speed. It's interesting from. When I retired from being the manager, I had something like 400 guys going at that stage. I had two of the biggest projects just coming to an end as far as the convention centre and um, the three towers. Um, you go from people lined up outside the office 
150 emails a day and then yeah, the endless phone. To when you retire, you got 10 emails a week, about five phone calls <laughs> and no one bothering you to come and ask you questions or whatever. You go from a very high output thing to a sudden drop-off, which for the first few months you feel a bit, ah, what am I going to do? But you just got to have a few little plans in place to occupy your time and mind to get you going. Once you get past that, it just seems to, (laughs) the old adage, which you probably hear from so many, but I don't know where I found time to go to work. You've got days that are quiet where you're not doing much. Then there's other days with, I don't know, a meeting on for something or a lunch or I'm going away. You you can plan things a lot more. Where work was involved, um, you couldn't, you know, quite often you cancelled holidays because this catastrophe has happened somewhere. So you'd put your holidays off or you put this off and, you know, kids, sports and bits and pieces, you know, all through your working life you adjust around your work. But later on, that's good. It's just you just roll along and it you ease into it and it becomes comfortable. And, Bob, did you have a plan for retirement or did you just make it up as you went along? What, what did uh, you do? I had a big plan. It was... The wife. <laughs> the wife came up to me and said, look, I think I've had enough. Uh, I want to retire. Uh, what do you think? So uh, I thought, well, I'm still liking what I'm doing. Um, and you so, were slightly younger too, weren't you, Bob? Yeah, yeah. I was, you know, around 60, um, 59, 60. Um, so I, I, you know, we got a financial advisor, sat down, talked to him um, and then after the meeting, we said, yeah, let's do it. So what I did then is I went in and spoke to David Madsen, gave a year's notice. Um, but as the year got closer, I thought, have I done the right thing, you know? But uh, We thought you had. <laughs> <laughs> as it got closer, you know, oh. anyway, um, I, I, I retired and after the first month, I was up at um, – Central Coast with friends and we were walking around, a um, bit of exercise and what have you. We sent a caravan for sale. So we went, had a look. Um, wife said, yeah, let's do it. So we ended up buying a caravan. So, you know, I had to then get my uh, car uh, rigged up with electric brakes and what have you. Uh, came back and fixed, uh, picked it up the next week and then... Wife and I have never been in a caravan up until that stage and I had to tow the caravan along Panadell's Road back to my place, you know, out west. And it was oh, a bit of a scare actually. But anyway, we got it back and uh, within a, a month of being home, we're off around Australia for six months. And that was the best thing that I'd ever done. Um, I mean, since then I've had probably three more caravans. Um, you know, we haven't just done caravanning. We were lucky enough to be able to go overseas a few times. But, um, you know, the caravanning aspect was, was really good and it, it helped us, well, it helped me as far as retirement. I didn't have time to think about retirement. It, and that's what I think people have got to do. They've got to have something in the back of their mind to, to be able to do something and, uh, you know, uh, I say when you do retire, think about what you're doing. Um, you know, whether you're going 
going on a tour overseas or going away caravanning. Just you've got so many tools these days. You can sit there and Google it and find out what's best here. You don't always have to pay. You know, you can pay as much as you want or as little as you want. It's up to you. And in fact, the, the kids call me Tab. And it's not because I go down to the, the tab every Saturday, but it's they call me a, a tight ass um, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you know, it's it's it, you've got to keep yourself interested. I think in in what you're doing, um, and I, I think that's the most important thing. Uh, retire and have something in the back of your mind on what you're going to do. I think a lot of people. One of the biggest fears as you're coming up to that decision is. How much money do I need? I I, I might live till I'm 70. I might live till I'm 90. How much? It's not as much as you think. As Bob says, it depends on your lifestyle. If you're living an extravagant lifestyle, you'll turn through it. But if you're living the standard way you've lived for years, it won't change much when you go on holidays other than you don't have probably an income coming anymore. But with what you can set up, the financial people – these days, it, I think a lot of people worry, end up with a lot more, stay a lot longer at the work than they probably need to because they worry about how much they're going to spend or do. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I, I must admit, I mean, you go caravanning. Uh, the extra cost is sort of petrol for the car and providing you've got the caravan and probably accommodation here, there. And, and, and you know, it's not that much. Uh but if you want to caravanning and, and go and see all these tours and do this and do that, it does cost you a little bit more. But, you know, I, I, as I said, it's, um, uh, yeah, you've got to have something to do. Keep your mind occupied Yeah, what you yep. do. Stay busy. Yeah. Well, guys, it's been great having you here today to share some wisdom and to hear about Stowe from your perspective. So thank you for your contribution you've both made to Stowe over many years and we trust retirement continues to be kind to you gentlemen. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you.